0: This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. How are you doing, Paul?
1: I'm doing well, Matt. And Today is the first day of the lunar calendar, so there was a virtual festive atmosphere at Radio Free Asia with the Vietnamese, the Tibetans, the Chinese, and the Koreans, who all observe the Lunar New Year, all of them bringing in the Year of the Ox.
0: Yes, that was very nice to see. So in the podcast this week, I will be focusing once more on the fast-moving and disturbing events in Myanmar that remain front and centre in our coverage at RFA, both in Burmese language and for our English language team led by Paul. What will you be looking at in the podcast, Paul?
1: we we'll are looking at social media and a U.S. startup social audio app called Clubhouse that briefly offered the Chinese populations around the world a chance to talk together about sensitive subjects before China shut it down on
0: February 8th. Okay, that sounds fascinating. We'll look forward to that. So let's turn to Myanmar, where the military has struggled to contain public outcry over its February the 1st military coup. Despite curfews and bans on gatherings, protests have grown larger and this week security forces started to use force against peaceful demonstrators. I'm joined by Jormin Tun from RFA Burmese service to discuss the latest developments. Hi Jormin Tun.
2: Hi Matt, thank you very much for having me.
0: So first let's listen to some of the sounds from the streets in Myanmar during this week's protests. Those sounds of firing were from near a traffic circle in the capital, Napierdor The military claimed that they used rubber bullets, but one young woman was struck in the head with what doctors believe was live ammunition. As we record this podcast today on Friday, February the 12th, doctors were saying she was medically dead and only sustained by life support. Her plight has angered the nation, but the military is only tightening the screws. The number of arrests are rising into the hundreds, there are reports that the military will shut down the nation's internet from February the 14th for two weeks. That would hobble the ability of protesters to share information, obviously. It will also cripple commerce and cut Myanmar off to the outside world. Dark days may lie ahead. So there's so much to discuss with you this week, John Minton. But let's start with what happened to Mir Tweetwekain, the lady who suffered a critical head injury in Nebidaw. Can you describe what happened to her?
2: Yes, she was 90 years old and one of the two protesters hit by the police fire during the protest against the military coup in Nipido on February 9th. She was hit in the head and was being treated at the Nipido 1000-bed hospital. According to the doctors who were treating her, her brain was dead. Her family told RFA that they does not wish to pull the life support yet.
0: And tell us a little bit about her background and was she among the protesters?
2: Yeah, she was among the protesters along with her sisters who spoke to us the following day. Her sister thought she was far down because of her anger or agony during the protest when they are confronting with the police forces. It was later found out she was hit.
0: Okay, there was a citizen journalist video that showed her. I mean, she's wearing a motorcycle helmet, and she had her back turned, and then suddenly she slumps to the ground. And it seems like she's the, the primary victim so far of security forces crackdown in Myanmar. So how have protesters around Myanmar responded to what happened to her?
2: She became the immediate hero to the uh, protester and all those who oppose the uh, military coup including NRI leaders, 88 generation students, and the government employees who joined the civil disobedient campaign nationwide. They express uh, their sympathy and their solidarity with her. They share her photos and story across the social media and express their sorrow too. They say, oh, this is only uh, about my daughter's age. And, and also condemning the uh, military authorities for using that kind of force. The following day, the protester even carried a large poster uh, with her image in the uh, largest city of Yangon. Some prominent activists wrote, Salutation posts about her death and condemning the uh, authorities as coward.
0: Yeah, it, you're right. She has become something of an icon for the protests. I saw the one image of Ledan Junction where a lot of protesters gather in Yangon each day. And there was a huge banner just the day after she was shot that had been hung down from an overpass. It, it's very impressive, actually, how the protesters can mobilize such a, a reaction so quickly. And, you know, when I heard about this use of lethal force by the police, I thought it would dissuade people from taking to the streets but it seems to have had the opposite effect. Can you give us a sense of how big and how widespread the protests are now across Myanmar?
2: That's what's true. People did not discourage discouraged by the crackdowns, but even larger crowds every day. In some cities like Mandalay and Yangon, hundreds of thousands were reportedly participating in the protests. The protests were widespread in Rakhine, Kaya, Mon, and Shan states were holding protests. Since February 9 confrontation and Nate Bidoy and Mendeley, they already seemed reluctant to use force. They tried to explain on the state media and state social media accounts that they did not use the force only when the protesters began violence against the security forces. On the other hand, people believed that this was their last fight against the military dictatorship and they had commitment that they were doing this for their future, all for their children's future. This commitment makes them stronger and more resolute, expressing their objection to the military coup and the military regime. It was very powerful.
0: Yeah, I guess the people of different generations in Myanmar are very familiar with the consequences of having military rule, and it's very poignant when you see like pregnant protesters in Yangon who are showing their belly and and riding across it, down with military dictatorship. They're caring about the future of their children. What tactics are the authorities using against protesters to suppress the protests?
2: Now, their strategy is taking out the campaign leaders, leadership and key activists by raiding their homes and arresting them in the nighttime. People are streaming live videos, showing how the brutal the police and security forces are coming down to the houses and taking the people by force. And then a lot of sympathizers and supporters came to the place and surround the police vehicles or the whole quarters were crowded with the protesters. And they are arguing with the uh, security forces in order to release them immediately. and some instances they can persuade the police to release the uh, detainees
0: okay so it sounds a bit like a, a neighborhood watch but it's a, it's against the police
2: <laughs> yeah that's uh, unfortunately that's true it's uh, people have to defend themselves against the police
0: government <inaudible> what what are the tactics are the government using to suppress people
2: like in the past they are reportedly hiring thugs to create counter protesters and with a protester so that security forces can crack down. They might using the old tactics in order to crack down, but not to be a showcase in the uh, international community or the uh, larger public.
0: Right, but, right. Which brings us to um, another report. The military is apparently planning to shut down the internet for two weeks, starting on February the 14th. Why do you think they'd want to do that? And what do you think the popular reaction would be to that?
2: They reportedly are planning to shut down the internet for two weeks. Also, on the other hand, to enact a new cyber law to cut the all anti-government activities, including use of social media. The government, is very obvious, they want to create a controllable community that they can monitor and block any anti-government activities in order to tame this uncontrollable protest across the country.
0: Okay, and I imagine that this could spark an even greater popular backlash, but I guess that remains to be seen. Can we move on to another aspect of the military's crackdown? We see that they've arrested dozens of officials from the Union Election Commission, which was the body that organized the November 8 elections that the military claims were riddled with fraud, although there's no evidence to actually back that up. So why do you think the military is arresting all these election commission officials.
2: Political analysts in the uh, opposition said the hunter wants to find out any technical or legal errors or mistakes by the election commission members or any information or confession by coercion or by fear to justify the coup. They will find one way or other to create their legitimacy and want to show the international community and the uh, larger public that their seizure or the power is fair and was justified. That is, I think, the uh, main reason behind these arrests and detention.
0: It seems like a fool's errand because no one is going to believe the military, at least not in the international community. Um, Maybe they'll persuade some people inside Myanmar, but I doubt they persuade many people. But anyway, the international pressure is, is certainly growing on Myanmar, and we saw that the U.S. this week announced tough sanctions against members of the new junta, and it seized a billion dollars in funds that uh, Myanmar government has in the United States. But in this situation where the military seems very determined to invalidate the election and hold a new election, the NLD people are still being detained and we haven't heard from them. Do you see that there's any chance right now of a political resolution or some kind of compromise between the military and Aung San Suu Kyi to end this crisis?
2: According to the Maldives sources, the Hunter leaders do not care international community. They only pay attention to China or Russia, as they did for several decades after 1988. For the military leaders, the ship or compromise between then and the NLD has already sailed. Uh, For analytic leaders, the damage was done, and it was the point, it's past that point, so no return for them. But if the hunter could not control the projects for more than a month, or substantive international actions followed by unanimous consensus among the international community, there is a chance of political resolution or compromise. But it is very unlikely.
0: John Min Tun, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on what's happening inside Myanmar.
2: Thank you very much for having me again, Matt.
0: Thanks, Matt and John Min Tun. It
1: sounds like our Myanmar colleagues are going to have their hands full for a long time. Now, a bit of change of pace, from turmoil on the streets of Myanmar to a fascinating but fleeting online debate that took place among Chinese speakers on the mainland and outside until Beijing pulled the plug this week. The social audio app Clubhouse, a young US startup, lets audio conversations take place in real time and the contents then expire from the platform so nothing is recorded. That made it a rare platform that allowed mainlanders who live under censorship to discuss touchy issues like Xinjiang and Taiwan with Mandarin speakers living outside of China. In the short time the app worked in China, there was an explosion of exchanges on topics that are not discussed by China's state media or in school textbooks. Writing in foreign policy magazine, veteran China journalist Melissa Chan likened it to West and East Germans meeting along the faltering Berlin Wall back in 1989. To bring us up to date, on the exciting developments in Clubhouse over the past few weeks. We're talking to Wang Yun, Jeff Wong, of RFA's Mandarin service. Thank you for making time for us, Jeff, and Happy New Year to you. Yeah, thank you. Have a Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Well, in terms of the content that you listen to during these weeks of the great window of opportunity on Chat Room in China, what was the most interesting aspect of these talks? I think it's the most uh, surprising thing for
3: me is that so many people in mainland are so enthusiastic in joining the different meeting room to chat with people overseas in different uh, topics, especially on social and uh, sensitive political issues. That's interesting. For example, what were they talking about? Hong Kong, Tibet, yeah, Taiwan? Of course, and the uh, Xinjiang Uyghur issues and also uh, the relationship between America and China.
1: Wow, well, those are definitely issues that uh, provoke emotion among a lot of people. What was the tone like? Was Did it get angry or was it mm-hmm. open-minded?
3: I feel that most of the people who come to this room are young people and the young professional. Uh, they are relatively calm and open-minded. S- some people may be a little bit angry about what other people say about uh, uh, different opinions, but most people can
1: and um, have a good order in discussing with other people. Refreshing, because it doesn't always happen on social media, as you know. Now I understand it's invitation only, which means they can potentially filter out, I don't know, government minders or kind of the 50 cent angry young people. Is that how it worked? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm
3: not familiar with the uh, mechanics or rules they use in those chat rooms, but uh, As you said, most people are invite only, right? So maybe through this way, some 50 cents people or government people has been uh, filtered out. I see. Uh, But I I still uh, feel sometimes there are some people uh, speak like government people. They are diverging the focus of discussion. And it's not just me. And some people who talk in
1: different chat rooms also pointed out. It's inevitable because China devotes a lot of resources to trying to manage its image and uh, try to shape understandings of its policies and its actions. Is there a really big gap in understanding of events between, say, people on the mainland and people in Taiwan? There are some debates on Taiwan issues. They said
3: Taiwan should be incorporated into China. China should be one, Taiwan should not be separated and some other people debated with him, but it's it's a good discussion. I mean, we we understand that people have different opinions, right? People in this
1: room can still debate with this person. Do you think the learning was mutual and went in both directions? In other words, some of the accounts I read about at New York Times and uh, other places are talking about, well, a lot of people on the mainland, they didn't really know what was going on in Xinjiang, for example, with the Uyghurs and the camps, but they came away with the a better sense of what's going wrong there. But were there things the other way around where Chinese explanations helped open the eyes of, say, outsiders, uh, Americans, Taiwanese, Hong Kongers?
3: This is a very good point. I mean, very good question. I think, I feel that the learning in both ways, but uh, the most salient for me is that people from mainland are learning from outside people. I remember one person who has a Twitter account. Uh, She posted uh, a short paragraph on her Twitter account saying that I almost cried uh, when I heard people are talking about uh, Uyghur issues. In previous years, I, I have heard people talking about this issue, but I didn't trust them. I didn't believe this kind of thing may happen in China. But when I made it into this room, I heard a lot of people talking similar situations. I, I feel that this is a real disaster. This is one way of learning. But in another way, I feel in this kind of rooms, people outside, overseas Chinese are also trying to take into account people inside China uh, talking about uh, Uyghur issues. I mean, th- maybe they're different. Sometimes they are hot debated, even quarreling. but they already know through this way the different opinions from people inside China.
1: Sure. I sometimes feel that... Uh... You know, mainland Chinese people they get unfairly portrayed as robots because people out who don't are not familiar with, you know, the relative vitality of debate assume that the government line that they hear from Xinhua News Agency or whatever, the People's Daily Global Times is how people think and there's not a lot of people thinking outside the lines or outside the box.
3: The other thing I want to mention is that people inside China are still very fearful about talking this kind of issues on this chat rooms. I remember one time in a room, focusing on a Xinjiang issue, a Uyghur issue. When he spoke up, it's not him who is speaking. It's a recording, it's a machine mm-hmm. speaking. He, he said, uh, because I, I am a Xinjiang um, person. I'm from Xinjiang, I'm a Uyghur. I fear some trouble may come in. So I decide to speak this way. I see. Uh, Yeah, this is a moment I know that people inside China really fear about government uh, punishment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of like in the movies when they, you know, a a spy or something leaves a message, right? Right. (laughs) Altering the voice. Well, uh, on that subject, and you've been following uh, social media in China for quite a while as a journalist. uh, Many people believe that China was much more freewheeling, especially with policies on social media, WeChat, and all those before. President Xi Jinping came along in 2012. Is that your experience? During Xi
3: Jinping era, there are some people, especially people from mainland, who climb over the wall, you know, the Great Wall, sure. uh, firewall, come to Twitter and talked about China issues. Some of them has been punished by the government for Twitter posts. I um, mean, those kind of thing very seldom or even never happened before Xi Jinping came into power. So this is a sign that social media has been much more screened
1: during Xi Jinping era. Of course, the Clubhouse app was turned off earlier this week. uh, And I think a lot of people knew it wouldn't last forever. So some of them were just enjoying that moment to say what they wanted to say and also experience the the community. What do you think Are the bigger lessons here uh, from this experience? Is it possible that another type of app can pop up and be accepted by the Chinese audience for a while until it gets caught? People
3: overseas, especially people in America, have thought about um, designing cell phone, smartphone app to get into China so that people can discuss or express their concern about the China issues Clubhouse actually reminded us we have to be creative. The success of Clubhouse is a very short period, right? Was shut down so quickly, but still a success. Uh, people inside China come out and uh, find a room, find uh, a forum like this, and uh, communicate with people overseas, so that maybe someday we can achieve a success.
1: You did mention that uh, there was a person from Xinjiang who masked disguised his voice to, because he was afraid. And I have to wonder, do you think people will get in trouble for this if they track down the IP address or whatever, and uh, are they gonna start mopping up the clubhouse people?
3: Yeah, um, actually I interviewed a technical person who once uh, served as a screener for Xindang Weibo. It's like a Chinese version of Twitter. He has already fled to America. He told me that uh, the servers in China, the servers for Clubhouse, they may have the background information of people who already log into a Clubhouse. So if the Chinese government may do something, decided to do something for Clubhouse, some of the people maybe have trouble. So this is also what many Chinese people in mainland has already expressed in their conversation in
1: Clubhouse. I sense that, I sense that. Well, Mm. Jeff, I'm really grateful for you sharing your expertise with us on, and it's an endless topic because it cuts into freedom of expression, cross-border information, flows, uh, culture, a lot of different things that uh, are endlessly fascinating, and many of them are very important to us at Radio Free Asia. So once again, Jeff, my appreciation for you taking time on your day off on the most important Chinese holiday of the year, the Lunar New Year, thanks. Yeah, thank you so much.
0: Thanks to Paul and Jeff for that look at Clubhouse. Seems like authorities on the mainland are afraid of people engaging in civilized debate, Paul.
1: Yeah, and the sad fact remains that even under martial law in Myanmar, and even under the military rule of decades ago, that country remains freer than China, if you can imagine that.
0: Yeah, that's pretty hard to get your head around. Please join us again next week for another Eyes on Asia. Until then, you can visit our website. That's rfa.org our past podcasts can be heard on platforms like spotify and itunes just search for eyes on asia if you've got any feedback or suggestions please drop us a line or attach an audio message our email is eoa at rfa.org it stands for eyes on asia i'm matt pennington with radio free asia alongside paul eckert this podcast series is created by Leo kim and produced by radio free asia thank you for listening and please join us again